There are sheets in front of you that have Psalm 73 printed on them, but if you don't have a sheet in front of you, or if you'd rather use your Bible or Bible app, you can go ahead and open up to Psalm 73. We're going to read through this. This is a, this is a bit lengthy, but uh, we're only going to read it one time, and then we'll just refer to it uh, in the rest of the talk. So Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not troubled as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the, through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there no knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go to your word, help us to apply it to our hearts. Help us to um, realize these are words of life, especially in the midst of the struggles that we might have in everyday life. So Father, we pray that you'll add your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a truth that's on our lips. This is something that we know to be true. This is a, a confession that, that Asaph had. This is, these are words that he learned probably growing up in Israel. Much like the words that you've learned in the church. This is the kind of the, uh, the statement. You know, God, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. You may know that phrase. And this is a phrase that's, that's echoed throughout Scripture. Christ in his Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's further developed by the Apostle Paul when he writes, For we know that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We know. We know. We know. We hear that all the time. But sometimes it stays, this truth stays on the surface of our heart without really getting down to the depths of our being and to the center of our heart. And that's where Asaph is. In the next verse, it shows us an x-ray of his heart, a glimpse into his soul when he says that his experience has caused his heart to doubt God's goodness and his fairness. In verses 2 and 4, he says, But as for me, 
My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at the point where, um, you know, I have to raise your hand, but have you ever been at the point where there's a conflict between that profession of truth that you know to be true, the things that you know to be true, and your experience in the real world? In this case, it is an experience of the fact that the nice guy is last. The one who has pledged their heart to God seems to fail, and the one who's a liar and a cheat and is a violent person seems to get all the accolades and seems to succeed. What Asaph is feeling here is a, is a, a separation between truly God is good to Israel and those who are pure in heart and then the reality that the wicked prosper. I remember feeling this for the very first time. I, you know, you experienced it throughout life. But I remember the first time I really dealt with this in prayer before God, it was in seventh grade. And I had walked into English class right before chapel, so I dropped my bag in English class and was getting ready to head out the door when a friend of mine took me by the arm and spoke in whispered tones, hey, did you know there's going to be a pop quiz today? And I said to him, well, the very nature of a pop quiz lets you know that I did not know that there was going to be a pop quiz today. And he said, oh, okay, okay. And then as we got a little further from the classroom into the quadrangle, he, he whispered a little bit more quietly and he said, do you have the answers for the quiz today? And I said, well, assuming I did not know, you know, you know I didn't know there was a pop quiz, so why you believe that I would have the answers to this pop quiz I'm not sure, but he said, pulling out a piece of paper, I have them right here. And then he kind of gives me a smile, as if to say, stinks for you, folds them back up and heads off to chapel after informing me that everyone else has those answers and everyone else is going to ace this quiz. And he goes off to commit them to memory. And I'm walking to chapel and I think, how how can this happen? How is it that I am going to miserably fail this quiz not having the answers and that everyone else is going to, to, to pass and I'm going to look like a complete moron? I'm going to look like an idiot in front of the, the teacher who knows no different. And I was bothered by this. And I went into chapel in my little seventh grade world, I, I felt this injustice and so I don't remember what was going on at chapel. I don't remember what the guy said, but I sat there praying the entire time and asked the question that I've asked many times in my life since. God, how can you let them get away with that? Have you ever said those words? I think we all at certain times have experienced something like that, something that makes us say, God, how can you let them get away with that? It's not right. I'm supposed to believe that God is good to those who are pure in heart, and yet the ones who aren't pure in heart seem to succeed, and I seem to fail. These guys have all the answers to the quiz, and I am trying to do the right thing, Lord, and I'm going to fail. The psalmist feels this way. And Asaph, when he is pro trying to process this, comes to the point 
where his inward envy turns against his outward profession, and he slips into a place where he says in verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The NIV says it much, much better, I think. It says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but at some point in your life you will be. You will have the success of the world and the success of the evil, and you will sit there and you will think, in your life, compared to that, that you've done something wrong, that you must have missed the boat, and you're going to question whether it's all really true, whether it's all really right, just like Asaph has, wondering if he's in vain kept his heart pure. So he begins with a statement, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and he slips down the, the muddy slopes of envy into, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, which means one thing. His experience of life has caused him to doubt that God is indeed good to those who are pure in heart. That's where his limit leads, and ours can lead as well. And if you look at verses 4 through 12, you see what got him there. Starting at verse 4 and 5, he wrestles over the fact that many who deny God seem insulated from the pains of life. Here, they're going about their lives, doing evil, and yet nothing ever seems to touch their life. Nothing ever seems to break their heart. Nothing seems to go wrong for them. And this is frustrating to Asaph. And that moves on to this, the fact that the insulation from life's pains makes them feel bold, like they're untouchable, like God's really not going to get them. And so it leads them to pride and to violence towards others. And not the kind of violence that takes out a gun and blows someone away. He describes the kind of violence he's talking about in verses 8 and 9. He says this violence is expressed in their hateful words towards others. They feel like they can domineer someone. They can push someone around. And they also feel like they can push God around. And they mock his name. Then in verses 10 and 11, we see that God is, is not striking these people dead. Asaph's over here waiting. Okay, God, bring it. They're mocking you. Do something about it. And yet God doesn't do anything about it. And this causes him even more pain. And the people around him think, he's getting away with it. Why don't I just join in? That's what those verses mean. They're joining in with these people. Because God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And, and Asaph stands there with mouth open, just waiting for God to do something. And waiting and waiting and waiting. But these guys continue to get the promotions. They win the money. They buy a new yacht. And Asaph's sitting there going, why? We see it all the time in the news. Brutal dictators who deserve to die by capital punishment for the atrocities they've committed, and yet they die in old age. ISIS who can brutally persecute Christians, and yet they seem to advance and get stronger. College athletes who violate the rights of others and get a slap on the wrist. It happens all the time. It happens in our own lives when, when you're intentionally intentionally passed over, marginalized, and excluded because of your belief. When you do something the right way and you get a lower grade when the other person cheats. When you have done your best to bring integrity into your relationships 
but the people that don't seem to be the ones who are the most popular. And it can weigh on you and be enough to make you say, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? But the turning point begins in 15 and 16 when he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. What this means is he's not going to broadcast his struggles. He's not just going to go out and shout in the streets, God's not fair! Because he wants to figure out what's going on here. He's trying to take this truth and make sense of it. C.S. Lewis did the same thing when his wife Joy died of cancer. In the book A Grief Observed, he wrote that under an assumed name because he did not want his struggle to cause someone else to fall away. It was only published in his name after his death, after he had really come to the end of the puzzle, after he'd come to the end of the problem and, and asserted his faith in God. Similarly, Asaph is deeply troubled, but he doesn't want to damage those who look to him as the worship leader of Israel. This is like Chris Tomlin coming out and saying, look, I don't even know if God is good to people anymore. How many people would that impact? And so Asaph retreats and begins to ponder, what is this that's going on? Why do the wicked seem to, ex- to succeed? And then he finally comes to the realization in verse 17. He says it was all worrisome task until he went where? Where did he go? To the sanctuary. He went to the place of worship. He went to the place of word. He went to the place of prayer. And he went to the place of godly counsel. And there he got perspective. And that perspective was realizing a few different things. And these three things help us in our experience. When experience rattles our trust in in God and his goodness. First, he realized that his everyday struggles were a blessing. Look at verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them on slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. See, it's because Asaph has struggles that he's not like them. When you have no struggles in your life, if your goal in life is to insulate yourself from struggle, then for most of your life you don't think about the reality of eternity. And neither have these people. They have insulated themselves so much from pain, so much from from death, so much from the reality of the bitterness of life that they've shut off any thoughts of thinking about the future. You ask many people what they think about eternity and they're like, don't. But especially the people who are insulated from it. And Asaph has realized that it's because he has struggles that it pushes him towards God. It says in Scripture that God disciplines those he loves. And once you become parents, you try to explain that to your kids. I am disciplining you because I love you. And they look at you like, excuse me? How can taking away the things I like be love? But it says in Scripture that, that God does this to us. And eventually we see, we get perspective Why? Because it is love that doesn't want a child to run off into the wrong path. It is the, the, the parent that grabs their kid by the hand and tells them to look both ways, yanks them out of the street, reminds them, 
It is not love to let a child walk out in the middle of a road. Hmm, well, I don't want to, you know, I want to bully them. I don't want to put my will on them and then see them get flattened. And so Asaph is beginning to get perspective here and realize that their prosperity is actually a slippery place that makes them fall to ruin. But for Asaph, it says in verse 23, it says, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Get that picture of walking across an intersection? The others are running free, but God holds the right hands of those who love him and guides them. Asaph in his trouble has learned to depend on God day by day and moment by moment. And that's what our troubles are intended to do. They're intended to press us towards God and towards a relationship with him. But the second thing he realizes is that he was living in the middle and not the end. There's a three, in three-act plays, the middle is the worst part. It's the part where all hope is lost, everything is failing, the hero's back is against the wall, in a trilogy, the middle is usually the worst, of the, uh, the worst time that the, the heroes have of the three movies. It ends with them defeated. And because I'm a Star Wars nerd, think of Empire Strikes Back. Luke's got his hand cut off. He realizes the most evil guy in the universe is his dad. And Han Solo's in Carbonite heading toward Jabba the Hutt. It ends on a bad note. It's not a happy ending. It's called The Empire Strikes Back for a reason. They don't win. But that's not the end of the story. Thinking that's the end of the trilogy, had that not made any money and George Lucas couldn't have made number three, that would have been a sad ending to, to the, the movie franchise. But there is an ending coming. And that's what Asaph realized when he got into the sanctuary and realized, he says in verse 17, he discerned their end. And by discerning their end, he realized the end is not there yet. You and I live in the middle. You and I live in the time of the most tension, a time when, yes, Christ has died for our sins and we are spiritually raised from death, but death still prevails over life until he comes again. We still feel the sting of death. We still feel pain in this world. We still feel hurt and we still are subject to evil. But the story's not over. The end is not there yet. He says, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's where they're going. The end of the story for the villain. For the villain, the last act is the worst act of the play. For the hero, the middle act is the worst act of the play. And that's what he realized. He was living in the middle. And he says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. That's where he's going. That's his end. His end is with the Lord. But the final thing that Asaph realizes is that he is also in need of great mercy. Now let me go back to the, the illustration at the beginning, the story I told you in the beginning. There I am in chapel praying. I mean, I'm rattling heaven like I've never rattled heaven's doors before. Because up to that point, I really haven't had a whole lot I needed to pray for. I was kind of insulated myself as a child. And so here I am in my indignation wanting God to bring justice down on my seventh grade English class. And so I walk, head down. I'm like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail with, with pride knowing that I did the right thing. And so I'm consoling myself with that as I'm walking across the quad. Get into my English class, sit in my desk, 
still moping as the teacher gets up and says, well, today, boys, we're going to have a pop quiz. Like, we didn't know that was coming, you know. And then he looks down, and his face becomes incredibly red. And he says, are those the answers to the quiz? Some kid up front, front row, okay, no common sense, had the answers to the quiz right there sitting in front of the teacher. And the teacher looks down and questions the kid, says, where did you get those? And immediately he rats out the kid, you know, a couple of seats back, who rats out the kid a couple of rows over, who rats out the kid a couple of seats up, and it just, it's like dominoes, you know, they're all falling. To the point where he goes, how many of you have the answers to the quiz? And hands go up, and I'm like, yeah, I don't have that. it's just the quiz. I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. And so on the spot, he gives us a new pop quiz, which most people end up failing. I have to say, I didn't fail it. I did get a C, but hey, at least I passed it. So I was feeling pretty good about life at that point. And I thought, justice has been done. Or was it? Someone did not get justice that day. Who didn't? Me. Tell you something. That prayer came from a time in my life when I didn't know Jesus from last year's Easter egg. I grew up in a very liberal church that taught very happy things, and I knew that Jesus was out there somewhere and that I could pray and stuff, but I had no relationship with Jesus Christ. I had no idea what the cross was all about. My life was about me trying to be decently good, you know, not as bad as this guy over here and not as bad as that, not as, you know, goody-goody as a saint or anything, but I'm trying to get by in life and so when I appear before God, I can say, look, I wasn't an ax murderer. And hey, remember that seventh grade quiz? I didn't cheat. But the reality is, before God, before a holy God, I was condemned as well and I had no idea. And yet God answered my prayer and showed me mercy. Mercy I did not deserve. I didn't get justice that day. Someone else took the justice for me and I finally realized it was Christ on the cross took that justice for me. Asaph gets to the point of realizing this in the psalm. He's gone from saying God is good to those who are pure in heart, to surely he, keep, he has, surely I have kept my heart pure in vain, to verses 21 and 22, which he says, when my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. Okay, so when, when difficult things happen, it opens our heart to see what's really in there. And for me, self-righteousness was in my heart. Bring the curses down. Fail them all. There was no mercy, there was no grace, there was no realization that I deserved that too. And so when my heart op began to open, I began to see, a couple years later, looking back, just how wrong I was in my own life, in my own heart, that I deserved justice. And Asaph was realizing that he wasn't as pure as he thought. He's railing against God, and yet he is just as guilty as those he's blaming. Sometimes God doesn't bring justice on the wicked because he's wanting to give them time to repent. 
That's what he says in his word. That's what he says to Peter. That's what Peter writes in his epistles. God is not slow in keeping his promise. Hey, the reason why it's 2017 and he hasn't come back yet is there are people that need to repent. Don't think he's slow in keeping his promise. He isn't slow. He's compassionate and merciful. Because there's a lot of people like me who believe they were right with God and they were absolutely not. In verse 26, Asaph says, my, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He says, whom have I in heaven but you, in verse 25, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. His perspective has completely shifted because he took the time to go before the Lord in worship and prayer and godly counsel, and God has moved him from the place of self-righteousness to a place of realizing that his heart isn't as pure as he thinks he is, and his heart fails. And the only strength of his heart is who? God. And he confesses that at the end of this psalm. He's gone from, woe is me, I've been good and I deserve God to bless me, but he isn't, and throwing a pity party for himself, to ultimately, I am blessed because even though my heart fails, the Lord does not. And that's our hope. God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's true. But hey, none of us are pure in heart. Only Christ alone. And in as much as that we've come to believe in Christ and we've trusted in what he's done in his pure heart, God gives us grace and mercy. And that's what moves Asaph to say in verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge that I may tell of all their works, of all his works. It's changed him. His perspective has been shifted. He's walking away from the sanctuary now, understanding. Maybe he should pray for these people. Maybe he should do exactly what Jesus said when he came on the scene. He said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you're God's enemy. And you deserve persecution. But because of the cross, because what I'm getting ready to do, you are no longer going to be God's enemy. So, so what? What does this mean for us? It means this. The question is, where is your heart today? Is it over here in the, I go to church and I hear these things and I kind of, they're on the surface, but they're not deep down in my heart yet? Or have you experienced enough of life to know that sometimes horrible things happen and you're trying to reconcile your feelings and your experience with what you know to be true about God? That second phase that Asaph was in before he hit the third phase. Or are you in the third phase? Have you moved from the middle act to the third phase where you realize that God is your strength and your portion forever? The bitter experiences of life are meant to drive us from mere words of belief to honest walking with the Lord in relationship, processing our pain before him, wrestling with the deep questions of life to come to a solution, to come to an end that is not some sort of, of ticky little pious, well, God is good to those who are pure in heart, to, no, 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 let me tell you, God is truly good to those who are pure in heart, but I know my heart's not pure. Those are two different reactions. 
And the deeper that we walk in faith, the deeper that we walk in relationship with Christ, the more light he sheds on that and the more we realize we need to be on our knees praying for those who we can't stand. Ryan called you last week to reach out to those that you know for Christ. Dr. Yusuf called us last week to begin to reach out to those who we know for Christ, but let's not make two different categories, okay? Let's not make the category for the people that are kind of awesome and hang out with us and are nice, and I wish they would come to church because that would be really cool, and I would really like them to know the Lord because they're nice people, and another category of I will never tell these people about the gospel because I'm afraid they will be saved, and I might actually have to go on a youth retreat with them sometime. Or they've offended me so greatly, here's another category, they've offended me so greatly, I don't want them to come to know the Lord. They need to get what's coming to them because we all deserve what's coming to us but for the cross, we would receive it. So my challenge to you is to pray for those this week who persecute you, those who have hurt you, those who you feel should be too far away from Christ, that they may come to know him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, none of us deserve to be in this room. None of us deserve to pray to you. Pray to you. None of us deserve to have our, an- our, our prayers answered by you. But Father, we know it's through Christ alone that we can even come. If we came in our own merit, if we came in our own strength, we would be blown away. But you have invited us through Christ into your presence. And so we come before you today praying for those we love that don't know you but also for those that we don't love, those that we just can't stand, those who have wounded us, those who pick on us, those who are the furthest from we feel the truth. We pray that you will give them pain to the point of turning to you, that you would give them situations of brokenness that will cause them to ask questions and that when they do, that we will be there to say, God is the strength of my heart. Let me tell you about him. So Father, we pray for them. We submit them to you. And we ask to do, you to do all this according to your will and by your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.